0: Log Talk Radio.
1: This is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Tuesday, uh, October 24th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to another edition uh, of our program, this special edition of the Pan-African Journal. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the hundreds dying every day uh, due to the Israeli Defense Forces siege of Gaza, which is backed uh, by the United States and other imperialist states. There is the constant threat of an expanding war in West Asia and North Africa with the sending of military equipment, aircraft carriers, and troops by Washington to the region. There are ongoing clashes in the West Bank of the occupied Palestinian territories uh, with uh, the Israeli security forces, including the IDF. The U.S. administration of President Joe Biden has worsened uh, the crisis in Gaza and throughout the region. In the second and third hours, uh, we'll have a panel discussion, uh, and providing an update on developments in Gaza, and uh, of course, this will feature people working in the, in the humanitarian uh, sectors, uh, journalists, etc. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our interlude uh, with the revolutionary music and voice of Egypt, uh, Um Kalsum, and her orchestra. Let's listen in. Um. Kalsum and her orchestra. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Tuesday, October the 24th, uh, 2023. We are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we'd like to uh, move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. The Palestinian news agency, WAFA, uh, reported that over 400 Palestinian civilians were killed in a single day on Sunday. Meanwhile, uh, Israeli strikes at Gaza's homes and civilian infrastructure in the early hours on Monday were unprecedented, even if compared to the intense bombardment of the previous day. Israel's ground invasion is yet to take place. The Palestinian resistance managed to ambush Israeli soldiers at the Gaza fence, killing and wounding several. The New York Times quoted U.S. officials as saying that President Joe Biden's administration is concerned that Israel's lack of achievable military objectives in Gaza. Washington is concerned that Israel is not yet ready to launch a ground invasion with a clear plan. The Chinese state media reported that foreign Minister Wang Yi expressed China's deep sympathy for the Palestinians, especially the people of Gaza, because of their difficult situation. The Chinese minister said his country advocates a stronger, broader, and more effective international peace conference as soon as possible to support the resumption of peace talks. Fifty-three Palestinian citizens, including children, were killed as a result of Israeli raids targeting homes in Kanyunas and Rafah in the southern Gaza Gaza Strip. And uh, these and other stories can be found uh, on uh, the Pan-African Newswire website. And in concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing, and burning issues of the day, just go to our website. That's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access uh, to uh, today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcasts, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. song on Anita Baker uh, with the track entitled Rules, and of course there's been a lot of discussion about the rules of war uh, in relationship to the grave humanitarian crisis uh, in the Gaza Strip. Uh, we're going to listen to a panel discussion uh, organized by the news agency Electronic Intifada, uh, one of the best sources on information on the Palestinian question. And uh, it's going to feature uh, panelists, uh, one from Norway, uh, who talks about even uh, the designation of uh, the Hamas resistance movement as a terrorist organization and how that is not a universal designation, even though it is utilized on a regular basis uh, by uh, the Western uh, corporate control and government control media in the United States as well as in Britain. Let's listen uh, to uh, this panel discussion on the current situation in Gaza and Palestine.
0: Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada live stream uh, for today, Monday, October 23rd. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, Electronic Intifada's Associate Editor, uh, with my co-host Asa Wynn Stanley and our Executive Director Ali Abunima. We have a very full show once again today. We hope you stick around. Um, We have a live report from Dr. Mads Gilbert, um, as well as um, action alerts and ways to plug in to direct action um, with uh, our friends over at um, Palestine Action now that ha- they have a, a chapter in the United States, as well as expert analysis from our in-house analyst, uh, John Elmer. So please stick around, um, leave your questions and comments in the live chat. And um, with that, Ali. Please give us your opening remarks.
2: Thanks, Nora. Earlier today, the Health Ministry in Gaza reported that the number of Palestinians killed in the Israeli-American genocide had reached 5,087. That includes 2,055 children. 182 children were killed in Gaza in just the last 24 hours. This means that since October 7, Israel, with the help of the Biden administration, has been exterminating Palestinian children at the rate of at least 130 per day. I say at least because another 830 children are reported to be missing under the rubble of destroyed buildings. And in the West Bank, since uh, October 7th, Israeli soldiers and settlers have killed almost another 100 Palestinians, 28 of them children. Enormous carnage. that is going largely unreported because it is dwarfed by the bloodbath in Gaza. But any figures I give you are immediately going to be out of date. Every hour, new reports come in of wholesale massacres of families all across Gaza, people in their homes, in Gaza City, in Khan Yunis, in Rafah, in Jabalia. Nowhere in Gaza is safe. The images of dead and injured children, grieving parents, blood-covered elders, desperate doctors, ambulances in flames, and endless rubble reveal a landscape utter devastation. During Israel's massacre in Gaza in May of 2021, Huda al-Sousi, a young writer, wrote for the Electronic Intifada about braving the savage bombardment to go and check on her elderly parents whose building had just been bombed. Huda went out despite her husband's fears for her life because uh, the attack was very intense. My husband wanted me home with our baby, Huda wrote. As Israel was actively bombarding Gaza, he feared the worst for Waseem and I. But uh, Huda went nonetheless. She wrote, Before then, I loved going back to the street where my parents live and where I grew up. When I visited it, I would usually see many children playing hide-and-seek and other games. The sense of fun was palpable. But on that day, Huda wrote, nothing prepared me for what I witnessed. It was May 11th of uh, 2021. There was blood everywhere, Huda wrote. The smell was overpowering, a mixture of dust and death. I stepped over rubble from buildings that had just been attacked, And uh, among the debris on the ground, there were smashed up toys, school bags, burnt notebooks, old pictures, and a broken wheelchair. Finally, I made it to my parents and hugged them, Huda wrote. My father smiled. My father shed te- uh, my my father smiled. My mother had shed tears of joy. Compared to others in the area, they were lucky. Huda wrote about a building that was badly damaged and lots of uh, people uh, were sadly killed. And that was what she wrote in May of 2021. I do not know how many more hugs Huda gave her parents after that but I can tell you that there will never be any more. Huda was killed in an Israeli bombing a few days ago, along with seven of her husband's relatives. Her husband and two children survived. As you know, Israel is not just exterminating Palestinians with these horrifying weapons, bombarding them from the air and firing artillery from the ground. It is also doing so by completely cutting off the water supply and banning the entry of food, medicine, and fuel. Some hospitals in Gaza have already ceased functioning amid an unprecedented and endless flow of seriously wounded people. On Sunday, the Health Ministry said that 1,100 patients who need kidney dialysis face complications that could lead to death quickly because there's no electricity to run the machines, 38 of them are children. More than 70% of Gaza's 2.3 million people are now displaced. With water and food dwindling, they face horrifying sanitary conditions and a growing risk of epidemic disease. There are young children, pregnant women, elderly and disabled people subjected to all this. At this moment, according to the United Nations, people are consuming saline water with over 3,000 milligrams per liter of salt content from agricultural wells. This poses an immediate health risk, raising hypertension, especially in babies under six months, pregnant women, and people with kidney disease. The use of saline groundwater also increases the risk of diarrhea and cholera. Health partners have detected cases of chickenpox, scabies, and diarrhea attributable to the poor sanitation and consumption of water from, un- from unsafe sources. The, U- the incidence of such diseases is expected to rise unless water and sanitation facilities are provided with electricity or fuel to resume operations. That's the UN. And this is what Israel has deliberately imposed on the population Its top officials refer to as human animals or human beasts. On Sunday, three major human rights groups in Palestine uh, stated that Israel's complete siege on Gaza and statements made by its leaders demonstrate that Israel is deliberately inflicting on the Palestinian people conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, an act of genocide. And what's the world doing? So far, 34 trucks of aid have entered through the Rafah crossing from Egypt. It's unclear if or when any more will arrive. This is the equivalent to about 3% of the daily average volume of commodities entering Gaza prior to the hostilities, according to the UN humanitarian agency OCHA. And crucially, None of these deliveries have included fuel, which is desperately needed to keep the generators running at the hospitals. But as I've stressed repeatedly, this so-called aid is a distraction. On a normal day, about 500 trucks were entering Gaza through the checkpoints from Israel. Now, with so much death, injury, destruction, and suffering, Gaza might need twice that, just To even survive. The solution is not aid via Egypt, but for Israel to be forced to end its genocidal siege now. That's what we have to keep demanding of our governments. I want to turn now to another critical angle we've reported on, and which is important to continue to focus on, given Israel's continued production of unverified atrocity propaganda, which is being used to justify its premeditated savagery against the the Palestinian population in Gaza. It has occupied, besieged, persecuted, and regularly massacred for so many decades. As you may know, the Electronic Intifada was the first English-language publication to report in detail on Yasmin Parat, the Israeli survivor of the bloodshed at kibbutz Be'eri. According to Parat, it was the Israeli army's indiscriminate fire, including tank shelling of civilian homes, that killed most of the Israeli settlers in the kibbutz, along with many of the Palestinian fighters, whom Parat said had treated her and the other Israeli civilians humanely. Uh, Last night, our friends at Mondo Weiss published an important follow-up report. Mondo Weiss writes that Parat's testimony is complemented by evidence from Israeli soldiers who described how the Israeli military shot tank shells into buildings where militants and their hostages were hiding. Uh, Those are the words of Mondo Weiss. The article contains more important evidence that refutes the Israeli propaganda narrative parroted by Western leaders and media that is being used to justify the ongoing slaughter in Gaza. I want to read you a key section because I believe this information is so important and needs to be widely shared. On October 11th, Kui, Kui Kirschenbaum reported in The Guardian about his tour of Kibbutz Be'eri, a tour organized by the Israeli army's propaganda unit. He writes, Building after building has been destroyed, whether in the Hamas assault or in the fighting that followed. Nearby trees splintered and walls reduced to concrete rubble from where Israeli tanks blasted the Hamas militants where they were hiding. Floors collapsed on floors. Roof beams were tangled and exposed like rib cages. In another report in Haaretz in Hebrew, it does not appear to be available in English, on October 11th, probably following the same army-guided PR tour, Nir Hassan and Eden Solomon interviewed Erez, a deputy commander of an armored reserve battalion. He described how he and his tank unit, quote, fought inside the kibbutz from house to house with the tanks. We had no choice, he concludes. Most recently, Nir Hassan returned to Be'eri and interviewed a local resident named Tuval, who was lucky to be away from the kibbutz at the time of the attack, but whose partner was killed. In Hassan's October 20th Haaretz article, he reports, the following. This is to uh, to, he reports the following. His voice trembles when his partner who was besieged in her home shelter, who, who is besieged in her home shelter at the time comes to mind. According to him, on Monday night and only after the commanders in the field made difficult decisions, including shelling houses with all their occupants inside in order to eliminate the terrorists along with the hostages, did the IDF complete the takeover of the kibbutz. The price was terrible. At least 112 Be'eri people were killed. Others were kidnapped. Yesterday, 11 days after the massacre, the bodies of a mother and her son were discovered in one of the destroyed houses. It is believed that more bodies are still lying in the rubble. This quote from Haaretz is important for several reasons. One is because it adds to the understood timeline of events. This testimony would seem to indicate that many Israeli captives were still alive on Monday, October 9, a full two days after the events of Saturday, October 7. While it might be understandable if captives had been killed in the hectic crossfire of an initial Israeli response to the attack on the 7th. This account would seem to indicate that the decision to assault the kibbutz and everyone inside was made as a clear military calculation. It is clear Palestinian militants were hiding in these buildings with their Israeli captives as Israeli soldiers were blasting their way in with massive tank shells in close quarters. It deserves to be investigated who caused most of the deaths and destruction that took place. This is especially important as these deaths are now being used to justify the destruction of Gaza and the killing of thousands of civilians there. That's from the report in Mondo Ice that I encourage you to read and share. Now, that destruction is set only to increase if Israel goes ahead with a planned or threatened ground invasion. And we're going to be talking about that later in today's uh, program. But last night, President Joe Biden, Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada, uh, France's Emmanuel Macron, Chancellor Scholz of Germany, uh, Prime Minister Giorgio Meloni of Italy, and Rishi Sunak. Prime Minister of the UK issued a joint statement about the situation in Gaza. They, quote, reiterated their support for Israel and its right to defend itself against terrorism and called for adherence to international humanitarian law, including the protection of civilians. They also welcomed the announcement of the first humanitarian convoys to reach Palestinians in need and committed to continue coordinating with partners in the region to ensure sustained and safe access to food, water, medical care, and other assistance required to meet humanitarian needs. End quote. That's their statement. But notice what was completely absent was any call for a ceasefire or any call on Israel, the occupying power to meet its obligations under international law, to ensure the supply of food, water, and medicine to the people it occupies. What can we make of these leaders' statement then? If they believed that their beloved Israel was already adhering to international humanitarian law, including the protection of civilians, there would have been no need to make this statement at all. What I think it reveals then is their full knowledge of the crimes Israel is committing with their complicity and support. It reveals a consciousness of guilt on their part. It is nothing more than a feeble attempt to wash their hands of the blood they are helping Israel spill. As I mentioned, water, medicine, and other life essentials are barely trickling into Gaza, if at all. But let me tell you what is flowing into the region completely unhindered. As of Sunday night, according to the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, 62 cargo planes had landed in Israel, bringing in military spare parts and American bombs to drop on Gaza. According to Israeli Defense Ministry sources, this is the second largest such airlift of the country in its history after the famous airlift during the October nineteen seventy-three war. Huda al susis mentor and our friend Rifat al-Arair, whose home was bombed last week and who is now in a shelter with his family, went out a few days ago and took these photos of the shrapnel in the streets of Gaza. Sharp heavy shards of metal from American-supplied Israeli bombs that tear through human flesh. That, not any lip service to protecting civilians or humanitarian aid, is the true measure of US actions and intentions. That is what the United States is sending to Gaza. As long as the US and Europe, Tel Aviv's chief arms suppliers, sponsors and protectors, are not doing everything in their power to halt the Israeli genocide, they remain just as responsible for it.
0: Thank you, as always, Ali, uh, Ali is our executive director here at the Electronic Intifada. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, along with Asa and stanley We're both associate editors and co-hosts of the podcast uh, and of these live streams. We want to bring in um, our good friend, longtime friend, Dr. Mads Gilbert, a Norwegian emergency doctor who has worked in Gaza during successive Israeli attacks. Dr. Mads is speaking to us today from Cairo. He's been trying to join his colleagues in Gaza for the past week and a half. Uh, Dr. Mads, thank you so much for being here I I can't imagine uh, just the frustration that you must feel as a doctor who has worked in Gaza all these years and is unable to to be working with your colleagues right now at this just catastrophic time. Um, You know, last night the Israeli military... uh, Reported that they is that there were more than 320 locations across the Gaza Strip that were bombed. It was one of the um, most intensely uh, bombed, uh, you know, 12-18 hours that we've seen uh, in the last uh, two and a half weeks. And the Ministry of Health has reported that all of these targets are residential areas. Of course, that that barely needs to be said at this point. Um, and we're also seeing reports from uh, Gaza Health Ministry from doctors and, and nurses that uh, at least 130 premature babies um, who are in the neonatal intensive care units uh, in in Gaza City hospitals are at quote grave risk, um, according to aid workers, because of the dwindling scarce. Uh, electricity and resources and basic medical supplies, medications. In your opinion, as a physician, uh, as someone who's worked in Gaza all these years, how can you assess this catastrophe at this point?
3: Well, good evening, good morning, good afternoon. Uh, Thank you for inviting me, uh, Ali and Nora. Uh, Thank you for the incredibly important work you do to promote advocacy and actual information. Uh, The situation in Gaza is not a disaster. It's a catastrophic disaster. And what we see playing out live, minute by minute, is the politics of elimination executed against the colonized by the colonizing forces. Because what we see is such a massive attack on the human habitat, the civilian population, crushed into the very narrow space by the siege, and also the systematic attack on all the provisions you need to, uh, to live. And that is not first and foremost hospitals and ambulances. It is water. It is food. It is uh, electricity. It is human security, and then you may need the medical system. So they are actually uh, choking 2.2 million civilians by thirsting them, starving them, denying them light, denying them warmth, denying them practical possibilities to take care of their children. Then they are bombing them, and then... Importantly, they are also attacking the medical system, which should be, of course, protected. We know from the reports that 10 hospitals, of the hospitals, have been closed so far, and 29 primary health care centers, which are incredibly important, as Ali mentioned. This is 2.2 million people with diabetic patients, with hypertonic patients, with acute myocardial infarctions, with, uh, at any given time, there are uh, 50,000 pregnant women in Gaza. There are 100 deliveries every day. Many of them will need cesarean section, and many of the newborn will need follow-up care, maybe resuscitation, and maybe incubators. On top of that, on top of that, you have a patient flow of 15,200 war wounds, of which the last number. 5,000 of the war wounded are children less than 18. And as an anesthesiologist and emergency medical doctor, I know that taking care of war wounded children is exceedingly demanding and difficult. You need special equipment, the size of things needs to be right, and the fluids, everything needs to be um, appropriate for the care of the kids. So you have a massive influx of wounded that needs care, you have a population which is already more diseased than a normal population because of the 17 years of siege. And then you have this brutal attacks on the healthcare system, shutting down hospitals, cutting the uh, supply of energy and uh, water to the hospitals. They have killed so far 54, 54 health workers and injured 90. And I think they have bombed and rocketed around 30 ambulances. Now, this scenario is such a hell that I think Gaza 2022 makes Dante's Inferno look like a tea party. I will not not get distracted in numbers, but they are important. But precisely as Ali started, behind every number there is a family, there is a human being, there is a brother and a sister. And these immense numbers are hard to comprehend unless you have seen it. And I've seen it firsthand. The shrapnels you showed me the picture of, I actually took one of these shrapnels home to Norway in 2014. They are extremely heavy. They may have this size. The edges are so sharp that you can shave with them. And it's made of a very, very high metal uh, composition and they fly at hundreds of kilometers per hour, swirl, and they cut off limbs, they cut open abdomens, they cut open chests, and if you're lucky, you die. If you're not lucky, you're, heavily injured, uh, you're severely injured. And if you're lucky, you get to an OR and you have life-saving surgery. If you're not, you will not have life-saving surgery. Our colleagues are telling us from Gaza that the uh, strangulation of healthcare through the last seven years and the massive influx and the total blockade that Israel imposed two weeks ago makes it impossible to tend to all the injured. And they say that more wounded that should have survived are not left to die because they don't have the capacity and they don't have the uh, practical means to take care of them. So from a medical point of view, uh, you know, you always need to look after the root causes and not just treat the symptoms. And I say, as I've said before, the important things now is number one, to stop the bombing of the civilian population in Gaza immediately, to secure them human security through international protection, to turn on the light and turn on the water to Gaza, to open multiple corridors under international control where you can transport in food, medicine, medical equipment, and of course also fuel for the thousands and thousands of generators needed to operate Gaza, even if the light is turned on because the distribution system is so fragile that many institutions and hospitals will need generators. Stop the bombing, Lift the siege immediately, open corridors, and what we have seen so far from Rafa, 20 plus 20, maybe 20 today, is — I think that is just a political game, trying to fool the world, to think that, oh, how nice now humanitarian help is getting into Gaza. As Ali said, on a normal day, on a normal day, uh, during the 17 years of siege. Gaza's population needed 5 to 700 truckloads every day of food, of uh, practical stuff to live. So 20 truckloads after two weeks of complete siege and bombing, it is an insult. It is an insult. My colleagues are saying that they are running out of everything now. And I guess you have noticed that Israeli generals have been repetitiously now threatening the big hospitals, the Mustafá Quds, mustafa Al-Shifa, and Al-Aqsa to evacuate, threatened to bomb the hospital. The hospital leadership and my brave colleagues, the doctors, the nurses, the paramedics, have refused, and they have said we will not leave our patients, so this bombing has actually been obstructed. I also want to end by saying... Dr. Eric and I, we want to go in, as we always do, not because we don't think the Palestinian healthcare workers can do this job. They are world-class experts on this, unfortunately. We go there to stand shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters in Gaza, to bear witness, to collect evidence, to treat patients, of course, but most of all, to provide what's mostly needed now for the people of Gaza, And that is international solidarity. That is international big solidarity, true solidarity. And also, I would reiterate the uh, call from the Minister of Health three days ago to health workers all over the world to uh, establish emergency medical teams, travel to Egypt, come to Egypt, and we will go to Gaza and we will help the completely exhausted teams in Gaza who now have been working around the clock for more than two weeks, not only taking care of their patients, but also worrying intensely for their own families. Okay. I will end with a, with a short story. One of my best friends in Gaza is a very skilled anesthesiologist. He's young. He's, he's very uh, experienced. Uh, despite his young age, he has eight kids. One of his kids is studying medicine in Egypt. On the third day, just after I came down to Cairo, he called me and he said, uh, my brother, Dr. Matz, if we get killed, I want you to father my son. These are the kind of realities that our human brothers and sisters in Gaza are facing now. This is the politics of elimination. This is the Dahia Doctrine in full scale. The Israelis say anywhere from anybody shooting at them, from civilians, they define them as legal targets. This is the horrible true face of colonialism. The only solution is the root cause to be solved, and that is a free Palestine. Thank you.
0: Dr. Mads, uh, thank you so much. and. It just just the, the sadistic nature of what we're seeing, um, the fact that Joe Biden is congratulating himself for sending for helping facilitate the sending of twenty trucks for a population being carpet bombed. One of those trucks was full of coffins. Um, we're seeing the uh, reports by your colleagues, anesthesiologists across Gaza, who say that they are performing surgeries without anesthesia because the anesthetic medications have run out. What does, um, what does that do to the psychology of the physician um, to have to perform uh, surgeries under these conditions? I, I can't even imagine.
3: Nora, I think we have to uh, realize that, that also within the field of medicine, there is this fog of war and rumors and false mm-hmm. news are circulating. Um, Palestinian doctors and nurses do not perform big uh, surgery without anesthesia. They don't. You simply can't. Yeah. You know, the, some of the main war wounds are to the abdominal cavity, to the chest cavity and to the head. Uh, if you have a few shrapnels going into the chest, you can put in a chest tube. That you can do in local anesthetic. If you have to go into the abdomen, the patient needs general anesthesia. Yeah. If we cannot provide that, they will not operate and that patient will die. Because this is another uh, illustration of this uh, attempt to portray the animals in Gaza. Oh, they even operate without mm. anesthesia. They don't. They don't. Trust me. I've been there. And we've been without anesthetics for some time. Then we try to improvise, find other solutions. But uh, by and large, the medical procedures and practices in Gaza are at highest standard, European standards. They do. They do lack now local anesthetics. So there may be some cleaning of wounds. There may be some debridements, some reduction of fractures done without enough local anesthetics. But that is not Outside the border of what is ethical, ethically acceptable. Yeah. Uh, my second point is about uh, the closure at Rafah. We get many questions: Why are you still in Cairo? And listen, to get from Cairo to Rafah, you need to uh, trend, uh, you, uh, to go through the uh, uh, the desert, the Sinai desert, and the Sinai desert is um, closed Egyptian military territory. You need permission from the highest security level in the Egyptian military security uh, establishment. We have the full support from the Norwegian government. Our embassy is working very diligently to get the permissions. We have all the permissions from the civilian part of the Egyptian uh, society and uh, departments, but we, we are missing that last from the military, and they will not let anybody go to Rafa until they have full control or until they find it um, suitable for them to let uh, medical personnel in. So there has not been one single person crossing Rafa since this started in, and not one single person going out. It's only these 20, 40, 60 trucks. Otherwise, Rafa is completely sealed off. That, of course, also needs to be opened immediately. And there must be pressure. The Norwegian government has condemned the siege, the blockade, it has increased its humanitarian uh, support, and it has, it has refused to call Hamas a terrorist organization. So there are some other voices in the West. There are some other uh, independently, uh, you know, political forces. And our Minister of Foreign Affairs were, was here down during the Cairo meeting, and we had a long talk with him, and we have, we have the full support of our government. And we will stay until we get in. And again, the heroes are in Gaza. And I send to anybody who can hear, Palestinian health workers are true heroes of our time.
2: Indeed. Indeed. Dr. Matt, thank you so much uh, for for that. And I I wonder if you can tell us if you know of other efforts to organize emergency medical teams as you say at the moment the the egyptians are not letting anyone through Rafah, uh, but hopefully and presumably that will change because of the desperate need do you know of other efforts to organize uh teams to come to be ready to enter gaza as soon as the permission is granted
3: well ali we have tried to sort of get an overview and it's hard because it's not at the moment there is no coordinated efforts. It's the UN systems and then there is the NGO system and they have their cluster meetings. But I think what is needed now is not just the big ones uh, organizing things. They, they of course have teams that, uh, that can come. Uh, but what we need now is to mobilize this deluge of medical solidarity from Young doctors, young nurses, young paramedics, ambulance people who wants to come. And we know about that because they call us all the time and ask us, can we go, please? And we say it has to be organized for our organization, NORWAC. We have prepared uh, substitute teams to replace us um, after we are outworn uh, after two or three weeks. So we have a plan. Um, The big ones, of course, Red Cross, Red Crescent, Médecins Sans Frontières and others have teams. This is not coordinated. And the sad thing is that nobody, even if you have a team, is allowed in. So we need to mount mount the pressure on opening the borders. And um, I appeal to all U.S. young and old doctors, nurses, ambulance paramedics, whatever you have, radiologists, lab physicians, This is the time to stand up for humanity. This is the time to show that the Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank are not alone. This is the time where you write your name in the history books and on which page you want to be, it's up to you. Now is the time to stand tall in solidarity with the Palestinian people at large and for us in the healthcare sector to support the Palestinian health workers. Collect money, do whatever you can, but be active. Don't be alone and resist all these malignant uh, campaigns against us to support the Palestinians for being anti-Semitic. We are not. We are pro-Palestinian. We are anti-colonial, and we are for the justice and the good life for all people.
2: Dr. Mads, thank you for those comments and and that that appeal. Um, And I think uh, we often forget the important role that that uh, the medical community can play in in uh, things like this. I wanted to ask you, you have been in Gaza uh, during, you were there during Israel's 2014 massacre, and you were there previously. Um, what, what would be the, from your experience, what can you tell us about the conditions that your colleagues are facing in Gaza right now, in Al Shifa or in any of the hospitals under these circumstances. And what are you hearing from them?
3: What we are hearing from them in our multiple communications every day and through the nights is that they are deeply affected by the, by the siege and the lack of equipment, number one. The most important deficiency is the lack of fuel for the generators. So the most critical medical demand now, which must come from our governments, is to open Gaza so that the fuel supply can restart the generators, and for Israel to turn on the power to the electrical network already existing in Gaza. Then they tell us that they're lacking water. The immediate demand is to turn on the water pipeline system and the water pumps. The third thing they tell us is that it's very difficult to uphold general hygiene and the special hygiene you need for surgical practice because the pressure in the water pipelines when there is pressure is too low to operate the sterilizers, the ones that are sterilizing the uh, medical equipment. Then they tell us that the shared number of injured is so large that they don't have enough operating rooms to amend all of them. And the injuries are horrific. Today we got a new series of pictures uh, from children being almost melted from burns, where feet were uh, without toes, where the burns had obviously just melted away parts of the extremity. We don't know what kind of weapons these are, but the weapons are horrible. So the complexity and the number of injuries is one more problem. And and then, which is maybe uh, one of the most spectacular, horrible things about the current situation, is that there is no safe place in Gaza now. What we saw in 2014 and 2009 was that when they bombed quarters, you know, like in a, a neighborhood, the people from the neighborhood would seek shelter in and around the hospital because they still have a... An illusion that they are protected uh, through international law. This time, the homeless who have been forced to flee either by the order to move to the south or who has lost their habitat, their home, their apartment or their house, these hundreds of thousands are now flocking into the hospitals. So the corridors of the hospitals are completely clogged with people. Having taken refuge there with their kids, and uh, the number of toilets, the number of uh, you know sinks and towels, whatever you need for personal hygiene is not there. So they describe an extremely difficult situation, and uh, they are they are not the kind of people who are talking about first of all their emotions. They are talking about the dignity and the resistance and the medical system as part of the Palestinian resistance against elimination. So they see their role as being part of this national struggle to now avoid extermination and uh, on the long term to have a free Palestine. So um, I think the most um, touching and um, powerful teacher and and character uh, among my hundreds and hundreds of friends and colleagues in the healthcare system in Gaza, it is their stana, it is their sumud, their steadfastness, and it is their never-ending optimism and work energy, despite darkness, despite, despite bombing, despite not knowing what the family situation is, despite the most horrible injuries, children coming in, despite even getting your own family in as patients. They stand tall. And as they did the other night, when the Israelis were bombing closely around Mustafa Al-Quds and Mustafa Shifa, as they did also today, they said, we are not leaving our patients. Historical courage and a moral compass for a world which seems in the north having lost their compasses a long time ago.
0: Dr. Mabs Gilbert, uh, we want to thank you so much for the years of work uh, that you have done, um, not only standing shoulder to shoulder with the heroes inside Gaza's medical community, um, but also making sure to um, highlight the dignity that is... um, palestinian doctors and physicians and and nurses and and we thank you for your work um and uh once again tell people how they can follow your work uh and and get in touch with norwak uh, emergency team
3: no no don't 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 get in touch with me don't don't follow yeah. our work find your local organization or organize locally mm. Don't don't go into the big 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 uh, bag of uh, of huge organizations. We are a very small, very mobile organization. By the way, I travel on behalf of my university hospital in northern Norway. They send me on commission to Gaza um, now, uh, together with Norvak and Dr. Erik. But um, organize yourselves. Find local structures. Find local organizations. Be mobile. Be flexible. And uh, don't waste too much time and money on the on the big structures. Um, this is uh, medical guerrilla warfare. This is medical mobility. This is medical um, speed. Mm-hmm. And if you want to know, by the way, what it feels like working in Gaza, you could uh, buy my last book, which is called Night in Gaza, and which is a description of the uh, horrific conditions during the 2014 assault on Gaza. I'm not saying this. I earn not a nickel on it. All the money goes to the soldier to work. But it is a pretty uh, graphic and close-to-reality description, and you will meet in the book many of the nurses, doctors, and paramedics that are fighting for their patients and for their nation today. Night in Gaza.
2: Dr. Mads, one thing I really appreciate is how you do not try to separate uh, quote-unquote humanitarian issues from politics because all of this horror that we're seeing, the injuries that Mm -hmm. you are so uh, desperate to get into Gaza to help treat are caused by political decisions. Mm -hmm. It's not a hurricane or an earthquake. So I I just want to say how important that is, your willingness to speak about colonialism and to tie what's happening to these, these uh, um, political realities. One thing I want to ask you, I know that there is no substitute for being in Gaza to, help, to be sent side by side with your colleagues there, but is there anything that you're able to do? You mentioned your, your um, colleagues sending you pictures of injuries. Is there anything you're able to do from outside in terms of giving them advice or, or helping to to respond to uh, questions they have about treating some of these things?
3: Thank you, Ali. That's a good question. Um, they don't need advice. They know everything. They want cooperation in order to disseminate information. And we work around the clock in our little headquarter here in in Cairo we're by the way in the Mustachefa Palestine, which is the Palestine hospital in Gaza in, in Cairo, which is operated by the, by the Red Crescent Society, Palestine Red Crescent Society. So we're working around the clock with, um, with uh, distributing information that they send us. Uh, we're in close contact with um, the um, Red Crescent Society, with the Minister of Health, with the different hospitals. We communicate with uh, our politicians in Norway. We um, try to keep on top of the development. And I think one of the most important things that you can do today, if you care, it is to keep updated and read and follow alternative news sources. I have been following Western news sources and, of course, uh, the Arab ones, Al Jazeera, uh, English, and other ones, and, and it, it's two completely different pictures. So keep yourself informed, study, uh, watch the fantastic lecture that Ilan Papa had uh, this uh, uh, two days ago, three days ago at um, Berkeley. It's on, uh, it's on YouTube. It is the most illuminating analysis of what is going on now and what is the root cause of what we're seeing now. Ilan Papa, it's on YouTube. Be informed, uh, spread information, uh, be knowledgeable, study uh, the issue, go beyond the superficial. And for us, merely having somebody on the outside to talk with is important for them because as i said they feel abandoned they feel left behind by the world and they always say that when we come in they feel that they are not in the complete darkness so we do whatever we can around the clock we also meet a lot of other people and of course we push hard to get in and we hope inshallah that we will get in and then you will hear from us from the inside when we have time and we have a break in the patient treatment but again the heroes are in Gaza. They work tirelessly night and day. What we need to do now is to have our governments force the U.S. government to say, you do not attack any civilian hospital in Gaza. You do not bomb any ambulance. You turn on the water. You turn on the electricity, and you allow fuel, water, and food to get in. If they don't, they are complicit. Joe Biden, write his name, In the dark part of history if he doesn't soon stop israel and the key to stop israel is in the white house and in pentagon
0: dr mads again thank you so much for all that you do um and for being with us here today on this live stream we're going to let you go so that you can keep working with your colleagues um and uh, we will of course check back with you thank you so much again um, full solidarity and gratitude. And you.
3: And, and finally, uh, thank you for having me, and and really good luck to all the brave U.S. citizens of all genders and nationalities. I have a, a wide array of contacts. They, uh, you know, they they take our information, they spread it, they remake it. Uh, thanks to you know David and Bram and uh, and Luma and all the other. Uh, like you, yourself, brave people who stand up against the, the hatred and stand in, in solidarity with the Palestinians. You, the, the U.S. citizens, are the most important in the solidarity work now. Thank you. Thank you,
2: Mads. Dr. Mads. Thank you. Kulunagasa. 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 We're all Gaza.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Mads. Speaking of brave people in the U.S., who are literally putting their bodies where their mouths are. We want to bring in um, two activists, uh, friends and and comrades, um, Max Geller who is in London and he's with Palestine Action, an organization based in the UK that um, we have reported on for years and years. And also Kala Walsh, who is um, one of the founding organizers for Palestine Action U.S., which has just been launched, um, doing work uh, to bring the factories, the weapons manufacturers and their work to a grinding halt um, by, by activists. And so Max and Kala, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada Livestream today.
4: Thanks for having us.
5: It's really good to be
4: here.
0: Thanks. Um, Kala, can you talk a little bit first about what Palestine Action U.S. is and why uh, it has jumped the Atlantic um, and opened up a a wing in, in the States?
4: Absolutely. Well, first, thank you for having us on for all your really invaluable coverage and analysis these past couple of weeks. Uh, We in the U.S. are really inspired by the successes of the Palestine Action Campaign in the U.K., and arguably it is even more important to be doing this kind of work, disrupting the very links in the imperialist supply chain that are creating the very weapons being used to mass murder Palestinians right now. Um, I, for one, and other people involved have been involved in the cause for Palestinian liberation for years. We have in meetings with congress people and senators we have pushed for legislation we have pressured local government we have done boycotts and bds and mass rallies Uh, the list goes on and it's not that there isn't value or importance in those other tactics but that what we're seeing now is a higher level of escalation is needed Um, we see that mass global consciousness so clearly stands with palestine Um, we're seeing tens of millions of people take to the streets around the world, especially in the global south, but also across U.S. cities. Uh, Hundreds of thousands in London, uh, for example. In Turkey, the youth are storming NATO bases. Um, In Jordan, they're burning the Zionist embassy. In Egypt, they're storming uh, the border crossing to try to deliver aid to Gaza. And tens of thousands of people are marching in in U.S. cities, um, marching often to empty halls of power. So imagine what these tens of thousands. A people could do if we storm the weapons companies, if we stopped them from making the bombs and the drones and the bullets and the tear gas and the white phosphorus and the surveillance technology that is being used to mass murder Palestinians right now. And not only that, but then being marketed as battle tested to be used at the U.S. border um, in the Mediterranean to repressive imperialist U.S.-backed regimes around the world. Um, Imagine if these tens of thousands of people were going to the ports and the railroads where these weapons and supplies uh, to make these weapons are being transported and we shut that down. So this isn't some crazy idea. This is what we're being called to do by, for example, Palestinian trade unions. And we've already seen this example work um, in the UK where they've successfully shut down many weapons factory or one Elbit factory in the London headquarters, as I'm sure Max will talk about. Elbit um, has at least 12 locations in the U.S., and, um, of course, the U.S. is the very heart of the, the military industrial complex. So many other weapons companies and their subsidiaries are based here. Um, so yeah, I'll stop there and, and let Max share, too, about the work happening in the U.K., but we've already seen Elbit stocks dropping um, mm-hmm. in the, the past couple weeks since our first big action in the U.S. while every other major defense company's stocks are rising. Um, They even took the address off of their website of the location that we targeted. So they are very scared of the community's ability to shut down these war profiteers and to shut down local weapons companies that are operating uh, in our neighborhoods
0: thanks so much for that Kala. Um, max can you uh tell us tell our audience uh what elbit systems is the kinds of weapons that they make and the kinds of actions that palestine action in the uk have been taking but, and and you know you're you're from the states um what yeah. is your reaction to to uh, to seeing palestine action spread
5: well i'm not just from the states i'm from boston so i was um uh it would be, I just, not to put too fine a point on it, but I am filled with civic pride to see um, Palestine action tactics spreading to the U.S. and that Boston uh, was the first city to do it. Um, it's in, um, but listen, uh, the, the fact that there, as we just saw, um, so many different uh, outposts for Elbit in the U.S. is indicative of their importance. Elbit is Israel's largest defense company. It functions as a parastatal organization. It participates in um, active IDF operations, including the ones that we've seen unfolding over the last 17 days. Um, Israel's largest export is its drone fleet, and Elbit makes 85% of its drones. Um, It cannot be overstated how integral to the Israeli economy Uh, Weapons are, uh, and and these weapons end up in uh, the most repressive regimes around the world, from uh, fascist Modi to the ethnic cleansers in Azerbaijan. Elbit's weapons are um, used wherever there is uh, imperialist repression happening right now, which just underscores the importance of this campaign and why we all uh, have to do what we can to shut uh, shut this company down. Um, listen, I think, uh, you know, we've seen over the last few days uh, Palestine pro- uh, protesters clashing with riot police in France. Uh, we've seen police dogs in Germany. We've seen uh, Babylonian stormtroopers, the NYPD, uh th- us uh, punching people in new york city um and in the uk we th- uh, this repression is happening too uh that that march that everyone is uh, happy about uh we haven't sort of had a chance to talk about police's the police attempt to repress it and we haven't been talking about the trials that so many of my comrades here uh in the uk are facing uh we have um uh three big trials uh, coming up uh, one starting uh, in, at the end of, of this month and uh, another featuring um, two of our founders and six others uh, that, that ca- carry serious jail time um, starting uh, in November so there's uh, like this context of what we're operating in is not I, I don't want to to minimize it but Uh, Palestine action uh, remains steadfast, and, um, you know, the people on trial uh, encourage me to not talk about their trials and instead focus on on, on the successes that we've had and the new actions that we've been unfolding. We've had an unbelievable amount of uh, new signups. We've been able to um, hit the BBC. We've been able to... um, drive a van through the gates of a Leicester factory, ending work at that factory for the day. Uh, And when um, one factory is unable to work, many other factories are unable to work because these factories, at least in the UK, function in tandem. So, we have the opportunity to really take a serious uh, toll on a vital cog in Israel's kill machine, and I encourage people to, to get involved.
6: Uh, Max, you've talked about
3: the legal repression that you faced in the UK. But you've also had legal successes as well. So I know, you know, prior and uh, until recently, every as far as I understand it, every single
7: um case that was taken out against Palestine Action was either dropped by the police, um, because Albert didn't want to prosecute, or there was even successes in court where you were able to successfully argue before uh, magistrate or other legal authorities um, that
5: uh, you court, Yeah, I mean, as recently as uh, a, a few weeks ago, we had um, an incredible, brave, these are some, I just I can't overstate how brave and noble these uh, people are in Palestine Action. This guy, um, he caused uh, hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of damage. To a Israeli weapon factory on the um, and, and uh, argued in court that it was proportional and won. This we did. This is a uh, person who was willing to go to jail, but uh, stood tall and was able to um, convince a jury of, of their peers that uh, their actions were proportional. And and it was it's so inspiring to see. Um, like a, a movement, uh, a, um, building around this and, and, and leading to sort of, uh, the legal victories that we're talking about here.
0: And Kala, um, can, can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, just the, the importance of, I don't, it, there's that, it's meaningless, but, uh, but how vital it is for direct actions to take place and, whether you see the u s as as maybe a more repressive terrain than than the u k in terms of doing the same action, shutting down these factories, um, you know the the work of Palestine action is so effective because it's not just having a protest or a sit-in or signing a petition. Um, th- these are actual material consequences that these weapons manufacturers uh, are 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 taking. Um, Can you talk a little bit about uh, what it looks like here in the U.S. so far?
4: Yeah, certainly. We have a lot to study and learn from our U.K. comrades and to apply differently in different conditions in the U.S. Um, So far in this campaign, with all of the actions that we've done targeting the Cambridge, Massachusetts facility, we've gotten away without any arrests. And that's also a location, as Max mentioned, that we're really interested in escalating with because... The legal consequences and political conditions in Cambridge are going to be very different than, for example, the other Elbit locations in Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Texas. Um, And so we want to see, you know, how far we can go. Um, I think the importance of direct action is that... Palestine is not going to be liberated by a shift in liberal consciousness in the U.S. Palestine is not going to be liberated because the Democratic Party suddenly has a moral awakening and decides to go against the will of their APAC and weapons industry donors. They're just not. And Palestine is going to be liberated by Palestinians and their relentless resistance. And Palestine will be liberated by the people across the world uh, who rose up to resist uh, alongside them, there have been a lot of direct actions in the past few weeks in the u s, um, mostly targeting politicians, mass arrests in Congress. Um, and we've seen you know great support for those actions. Uh, but imagine how much more scared the politicians would be if we were targeting the weapons companies um, who are their campaign donors. Um, and the examples in the UK they um, are literally going into these factories and destroying the equipment to literally stop them from making weapons. Um, the facility in Cambridge, which uh, for context is the neighborhood I grew up in my entire life, um, this is not you know, a factory. They're not actually manufacturing weapons here. It is a subsidiary of ELBIT that is mostly focused on biomedical research, but that doesn't make it any less complicit in this genocide that is going on. These people are still profiting from every uh, bomb and bullet and drone that is using uh, that is being used to kill Palestinians. And so we want to make it as inconvenient as possible for anyone working at this company to get into their place of work. We want them to realize that they all have blood on their hands, and we want everyone in the neighborhood, everyone in the building that they're renting their space from, to realize the same and to actually shut this down. And not only that, but to inspire people across the country to take up action. Uh, we want people to realize we are not powerless. Um, and that we have a right to and a, and a responsibility um, to stand up and to do more. And so we are trying to expand, you know, nationally. There's so many different targets, but really focusing in on ELBIT um, is the most effective strategy, as we've seen in the UK. We want to put out so many resources for different people to get organized in their communities. Um, Palestine Action UK just posted a video of how to fill a fire extinguisher with red paint and douse a building with it. Um, And there's many more resources and trainings that will be available. We're having an official campaign launch tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern and 10 p.m. London time over Zoom where everyone can join, learn more about why ELBIT is our target and what we're doing uh, to shut it down. Um, But ultimately, we are here to win and we are here to... Um, to stand with Palestine and to actually take action uh, to shut down these companies that are operating right now peacefully with business as usual in our neighborhoods. And as long as we allow that to continue, we all have blood on our hands.
0: Kala, once again, uh, give us the information for the call tomorrow uh, and where people can go to get uh, involved in and learn more about Palestine Action U.S.
4: So, you can RSVP to the call tomorrow at bit.ly slash palactionus. Um, That link is case sensitive, so I can put it in the chat. And then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at pal underscore actionus. I also want to highlight that for the first three days, our uh, Twitter was up. Um, We were completely shadow banned. It was actually bizarre. We'd never seen anything like it. Every single person who tried to follow us was automatically unfollowed. Our follower count would fluctuate like tens of thousands every few seconds, but it seems that it's finally stabilized today and we have 200,000 followers now. So the censorship really backfired and only made people way more interested in the work that we are doing and inspired um, to shut Elbit down.
0: Thank you. And Max? um,
5: Can I just say one thing before? uh, I just (laughs) want to say, um, I know uh, you all have been at it years and um, the electronic intifada has been um, an important resource for me for years but I just want to really say thank you for the last few weeks Um, the amount of uh, uh, material you put out there under incredible stress while losing your colleagues it's been um, inspiring to all of us and uh, we it's really uh, invaluable um, I can't thank you guys enough for how uh, much you're showing up, despite how terrible it is and how uh, personally burdensome it must be. And I, I really appreciate having being able to be on here, but um, being in the struggle with you guys. Thank,
2: thank you, you, Max. That that means a lot to all of us, and we 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 really feel it. I know we all do. All of us who are here today and All of us and many, many of the people who are watching, and it's a chance for me just to reiterate again that we do this work as part of a community, and that's the only way we can do it. We do it because we feel the love and support of um, so many people around the country and around the world, and we feel the love and support of our friends and colleagues in Gaza. Um, They support us as much as we try to support them. And uh, we stay focused. We try to stay focused on uh, what they are going through and giving them an opportunity to reach the world when there's such a blockade on information. And I, I just think that w- the, the actions you take um, also help to break that blockade on information, because something you said, Kala, that really struck me <clears throat> is that um, Palestine is not going to be liberated by a slow glacial change in the Democratic Party. And I think, as, as we've said before on other uh, live streams, I mean, for all the work we did over these years and decades to get, you know, the opinion polls to change, and they have changed. And to get some members of Congress to be able to speak more forthrightly about Palestine, and they are doing that. At the end of the day, that shrapnel is still still tearing through the bodies of hundreds of Palestinians in Gaza every day. That shrapnel that's made in America, that's made in Massachusetts, made in Texas, made in Alabama, and... I, I think you're also the work you're doing, the direct action work you're doing, has an incredibly strong tradition in the United States. People think immediately, of course, of the civil rights movement, which involved a lot of direct action. But they also, but I also think about ACT UP in the 1980s, who uh, with direct action challenged the silence of the United States government, which was killing so many people with HIV AIDS uh, due to silence and inaction of the government. And ACT UP changed that. And I also think of the um, direct actions in the 80s and 90s uh, at the School of the Americas, where the United States government trained um, torturers and murderers from the right-wing regimes in uh, Central America and Latin America, and many people did direct action there, and some some of them went to uh, to prison for it. So we're very cognizant also of the um, the the price that, that people are willing to put their their own personal freedom on the line for a cause like this is is something really incredible, and I know that that's gonna be very, um, that, that's that's a message that is going to provide a lot of uh, comfort to people in Palestine as well.
0: Indeed. Uh, Max Geller and Kala Walsh of Palestine Action, UK and US respectively. Um, you can go to Twitter uh, at twitter.com slash pal underscore action US uh, we have the little crawl at the bottom. Um, please go there. And uh, now you can follow them uh, without interference from, from Twitter um, and get involved. Thank you so much, both of you, for being with us today.
4: Thank you. Peace.
0: Thanks. And we do want to bring on uh, now our in-house analysts. John Elmer, journalist, researcher, um, and uh, John, you know, switching gears for a second, um, you heard from Mads uh, about the humanitarian catastrophe, the medical catastrophe in Gaza. Um, What are you looking at right now as you see Israel's, uh, as you said before, the the cowardly uh, carpet bombing? Of Gaza, while uh, Israeli leaders, and uh, you know, backed and and sponsored by the West, are still hinting at a ground invasion, um, but are being evasive now uh, about when or if it would take place. What are you watching right now?
7: Yeah, I mean, I think with the humanitarian thing that's important to say is that the Rafa border is not a commercial crossing, it's a civilian crossing and they're bringing these trucks, these tiny little trucks through that crossing and then unloading them by hand. Right around the corner uh, is Kerem Shalom, which is a massive Israeli cross, I mean, it's an Israeli international border crossing connected to a port that has the ability to resupply a humanitarian uh, mission to Gaza. Um, in a wholesale manner and what's happening at Rafa is a fig leaf um, it, It's a it, it's a it's a joke. It's a gimmick um, That's happening to distract from the massive catastrophe that's happening in the Gaza Strip I mean, I think for, in terms of the, the Israeli situation. It seems like they're delaying um, Every day they're delaying this uh, because they're um, I think that there's a lack of a plan and there's lack of um, Uh, An understanding about how the maximalist goals that Israel is attempting to achieve um, How impossible that is um, And how brutal that is and I think even with um, you know their Their best friend regime in the US. I think that that's obvious that there needed to be some sort of fake humanitarian uh, fig leaf to this operation and that's what the Israel uh, the Americans delayed the Israelis to do, to go over for Biden to go over to coordinate their messaging. Um, the White House is doing that. The Pentagon right now is scouring their um, reserves looking for 155 millimeter artillery shells that can be used with ground troops uh, in the Gaza Strip. Um, You know, Israeli preparedness in general, we're seeing today disagreements between the army and the political staff um, in their war cabinet about these objectives, because the objectives are unclear. uh, They're unclear that they're possible to do, but to eliminate Hamas and its entire, um, you know, set of fighters for uh, generations to come, as Netanyahu said, is a significant military task that Israel Um, uh, it's unclear that Israel is prepared for that task. The outgoing uh, central command head for the U.S. said that the the fight in Gaza is the hardest fight on the planet. Um, You know, Israeli generals spoke this weekend um, on their radios talking about how um, it's an existential fight and that nobody supports the maximalist goals uh, of Israel, but that it's an existential fight Because Israel has to win this war they see because nobody's going to want to live in the south or in the north in these settlements that uh, Israel has evacuated the south is completely evacuated and the north is evacuated you're talking about 60 towns and cities evacuated before the war in the north and the south has even begun Um, so that gives you an idea of the preparation we saw in the West Bank yesterday again they're arming They're citizens, they're Jewish citizens, um, making militias. There's more than 600 militias that have been armed with 40,000 M4 rifles, helmets, vests, um, civilian, they're calling them civilian security squads, um, implying that there's not enough military force to control an uprising in the West Bank should that happen. So they're arming Jewish uh, civilians to um, what they call preempt um, an uprising in, um, in 1948 Palestine in Israel um, and, and so I think we see these signs we saw Israel bomb from the air for the first time since the second intifada the refugee camp in Janine again implying that they don't have uh, soldiers that could do uh, that kind of work Um, I think that there's a lot of delaying that's happening within this war cabinet, which is interacting and communicating constantly with the Americans um, about how to carry this out in front of the whole world um, amid this like absolutely catastrophic civilian devastation that uh, Dr. Mads talked about. Um, It was great to have him on the show. Um, It's an absolute catastrophe, and it hasn't even started yet.
2: John, you have been talking consistently about how the Israelis are unprepared and how difficult this uh, military task that they've set themselves is. And yesterday, I believe, um, the Qassam Brigades uh, of uh, the the military wing of Hamas announced that they had carried out a very uh, precise ambush against an Israeli military team of a couple of tanks and armored bulldozers that tried to enter uh, Gaza from the east near Khan Yunis, And uh, Qassam announced that they attacked them and they destroyed them and they forced them to flee on foot. And uh, later on, Israel acknowledged uh, that uh, one of its soldiers were killed and three others injured in this uh, uh, operation by Qassam. So all that points to to Israel in many ways not being prepared. Um, also, this operation keeps being delayed week after week after week. We've seen reports in the media of the U.S. saying that, um, or, or reports that the U.S. is telling Israel, well, let's delay this because we want to try and get the hostages, or as they call them, the hostages. The the captives and prisoners out. But the Israelis keep doubling down publicly on this goal of we're going to go in, we're going to destroy Hamas, we're going to eliminate them completely. There's no sign of them moderating their goals. Oh, and there was a statement last week, which we discussed, where one of their spokesperson said, well, maybe we're not going to do a ground operation. So do they not know what they're going to do? Are they going to do it anyway? I mean, what can we make of all this confusion?
7: The IDF spokes today said there may not be a ground invasion. That's the first time that I've heard them say that. They're just talking about the next phase. Um, Yeah, it it seems that... uh, Reports in Israeli papers are that the war cabinet and the, and the, pol- and the politicians are at odds. Um, you know, a military going in to carry out an operation without a distinct objective, is, uh, that's just generally a bad idea. Um, for the Israelis to, to be framing this as an existential fight, um, that, that has to happen for the state of Israel to survive, that's that's a very maximalist goal because you're, the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip are also fighting an existential fight where their uh, houses have been destroyed, their families have been, uh, homes have been collapsed on top of people. Um, there's nobody in the world ready for an existential fight quite like the people of the Gaza Strip and that's the people as well. It's not just the fighters. The fighters aren't separate from the people. They have immense popular support. Um, And if Israel does want to get involved in an existential fight um, with people who have already lost everything, who already know what it's like to suffer, I mean, that's what my friends are telling me. Everything that's happening right now is devastating and it's unprecedented, but it's not completely different than what they've experienced before. They've been subjected to war half a dozen times Um, They know what they're talking about and when they say they're ready for a ground invasion as we saw people chanting outside of Shifa hospital Yesterday we want a ground invasion the kids who had lost their homes and their parents have been killed um, And they're sleeping on the the floor uh, of the parking lot of the hospital saying that they want a ground invasion And on the other side of the border you have 60 evacuated communities Um, you have people trying to get an airlift from Tel Aviv to get back to Canada Um, the difference couldn't be more stark and so if you're talking about an existential fight um, then you're talking about a 10-year fight which is what the new yorker said that they learned when they were on biden's trip to israel is that some people are talking about 10 years which seems like a realistic amount of time necessary for a fighting force like israel that has no record Uh, their record of fighting face to face is very very thin It's very thin and the examples like that we saw Kassam hitting that tank with an ambush as it came in um, yesterday that's what's going to happen to all their armor all the time when they come in it's going to be a constant attack and we've seen Israel respond to those attacks in the past by immediately pulling back and shelling the population in Shijia in 2014 um, in one day, they fired the same number of shells as Ukraine does on a 1,200-kilometer front line um, during their vaunted counteroffensive. That was 24 hours on a captive civilian population in a densely populated area, raining down shells. Um, that, that Israel and the United States are scouring their, their stores looking for more because that's what Israel is going to need to defend its troops because you can't defend your troops in a concentrated area like that with airstrikes um, you'll kill your own troops so they need a, a lot of artillery um, to waste the area where these civilians are living um, and to um, to protect their troops that they're promising us are going to go foot by foot um, and, and down into tunnels and fight in a tunnel apparatus that is, uh, according to Yahya Sinwar, 500 kilometers long, um, you know, comparable to the, to the London underground, inside which there's weaponry, fighters, prisoners, food, uh, you know, ability to withstand what's going up, what's going on on the surface level. Palestinians have the ability to defend themselves from those underground um, from those underground warrens that can move all throughout um, the Gaza Strip. So I I, I think that Israel, the longer they're talking about this, the less political will there is to fight an existential war. Is is Israel ready for uh, thousands of their soldiers to die? Because that's what they're calling for, an operation. that That's what that entails. If you're talking about um, actually doing what they say they're doing, which, again, I want to keep saying that They're saying they're going to do that, but uh, um, we're speculating at this point. And what I see is an impossible task in front of the Israelis um, that would only result in the massacre of civilian populations. It's not going to result in the eradication of 60,000 fighters who have been training for two decades to fight this fight what it's going to do is it's going to massacre civilians. Um, it's going to rain that shrapnel that Dr. Mad showed us that is. It's so heavy. That's the thing you don't, you think it looks like a tiny piece of aluminum. It's so dense and heavy. And when the bomb goes off, those pieces are red hot flying all over um, anyone around. So Israel's not going to use those weapons when their troops are in the proximity, which just gives them one less weapon um, and one more um, truth that they're going to have to fight face-to-face soldier to soldier that's the only way to achieve the objective that they're asking for and Palestinians are uh, you know fighters are virtually begging for that because the cowardice of bombing from the air leaves people helpless there's nothing they can do but yell at the clouds Um, if Israel comes in and fights face-to-face you're going to have the 60,000 armed fighters in the Gaza Strip but even if you liquidated them then what do you think is going to happen? You don't think the 100,000 angry uh, Palestinian civilians aren't going to pick up arms and and fight you indefinitely? And the Israeli plan is to then, what, bring Abbas in on the back of an Israeli tank? You don't think the Palestinians are going to fight against him like they do in the West Bank, like they did when they drove the PA uh, out of Gaza after winning an election, and the Palestinian Authority didn't give over security control, so Hamas fought them? And drove them out of the Gaza Strip if Israel's plan is to bring Mohammed Dahlan um, back I mean this is not it's not serious it's not serious nobody in Gaza thinks that's serious people are not talking about the day after Hamas and Gaza it's, it's not serious
2: on the, you referred to the uh, artillery ammunition and the uh, the uh, fact that Israel's tactic when their troops get in trouble, as they inevitably do, is just to shell everything, including their own troops. We talked previously about the Hannibal uh, Doctrine. Uh, But there are these reports uh, emerging, uh, we can put one up, um, that the U.S. is so short of uh, artillery ammunition that it's actually having to reroute ammunition that it was planning to send to Ukraine to Israel. And recall that a few months ago, uh, the U.S. was so short of ammunition for Ukraine that it actually took uh, the uh, pre-positioned strategic supply of artillery ammunition that it had placed in Israel. It took that out of Israel to send it to Ukraine. So now, and now it's doing the opposite. I mean, what does this tell you? What, what, what do you read from, from all of these things?
7: Well, that there's two active hot wars going on right now in the world and and possibly three if if Hezbollah joins and the United States and Israel don't have that capacity. They haven't had a wartime economy producing shells enough to fight trench warfare like World War Two in Ukraine. Um, And so they had to yeah, rob their strategic reserves of weaponry, which incidentally was put in Israel in 1973, the last time Israel was almost wiped out, and they needed a weapons airlift from the United States to save them in 1973. And so they decided that they would keep that weapons surplus in Israel so that Israel could tap it. And Israel does tap it. They tapped it in 2006 for the July war when they needed more shells. They tapped it in 2014 for the attack on Gaza, and those two are um, tiny examples compared to what the Israelis are talking about right now. 8,000 shells in 2014 in Shajia. What would that number be today when they launched a ground operation with uh, you know, dozens and dozens of troops? Um, And yeah, those shelling events where they use so many shells um, are follow on essentially Hannibal Directive incidents. The Shadja'iya incident in 2014 that they shelled um, was when their APC got hit and they thought that they had captured, that Israeli soldiers had been captured and so they shelled Shadja'iya. The other one was in Rafa where they also had a tunnel operation um, and thought soldiers were captured. Um, And that's when they lay waste using these shells they use more shells in one day in a densely populated area than on the 1200 kilometer front line of Ukraine, which is a dug-in stationary standoff fire war where with trenches um, where the troops aren't moving. It's a stationary front line Israel wants to walk foot by foot through Shadjia raining down uh, artillery shells um, digging through their strategic reserves to try to find um, enough shells. Lebanon was, what, 30-something days? 2014 was 50 days. They're promising a war that's at least a year. Um, you know, they're talking about many, many months. Um, and the New Yorker was talking about someone in the Israeli administration saying it would probably take 10 years, realistically. How many shells, uh, how many uh, stores um, stockpiles can the United States raid to fund their their imperialist wars.
2: Well, that that's something to watch, and that may be why Israel is so hesitant uh, also to enter into a confrontation on its northern border, because the ammunition simply may not be there for um, uh, a war on two fronts, and even the bombs will, I mean, not soon enough, but even the supply of bombs cannot be uh, infinite. But I wanted to ask you about another thing. Um, We've seen these uh, claims made by Israeli leaders. Uh, We can put put, uh, this up now. Um, This claim from Israel's uh, President Isaac Herzog that uh, Hamas had plans to destroy chemical weapons. Now, of course, as usual, Israel has presented absolutely no evidence for this. And I put it in the category of Israel's atrocity propaganda of trying to demonize Hamas and Palestinians generally to justify its genocide. But I've seen people speculating, and I stress this is speculation, uh, just in online discussions saying, ah, this may be that Israel itself is planning to uh, use uh, poison gas perhaps trying to put poison gas down into the tunnels uh, and, and try to kill Palestinian fighters that way I want to ask you if if that's and i and I preface that by also saying that there have been reports in recent years of Egypt either flooding tunnels or putting gas in them um, and i so I wanted to ask you is that something Israel is Capable of doing, and do you have any concern that 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 might be possible
7: well, that's what the Americans did in Vietnam they put c s gas tear gas down the the tunnels and it was banned um, it's uh, a, ban- a banned weapon in warfare after that. Um, 500 kilometers of tunnels, it's not clear that you could project gas into that much space. I mean, I'm sure you could do it. The flooding doesn't work. They tried to do that. They can't get enough water pressure to flood 500 kilometers uh, of tunnels. They would have to have um, infrastructure um to do that so they would have to be on the ground um with the ability to do that you'd have to also find the tunnel entrances to do that and that's not clear that they can do that they um you know they're really left with um uh, mostly what they do is they follow concrete trucks with satellites and and hope that the concrete trucks give an indication of where the tunnels are they don't really have the ground penetrating capacity to understand the network of tunnels to even do something like Um, get a spike in to put gas down it. Lots of the tunnels are ventilated, um, so it's not clear that that works. They also have their own people down there, so it's not clear that you want to gas 200 of your soldiers. Um, But, um, no, these kind of chemical weapons attacks, I think, one thing that Nasrallah has said from the north is that we're a war to start, that Hezbollah has the missile capability to target key Israeli infrastructure including a chemical plant in Haifa with precision guided missiles that um, um, has been something that Nasrallah has talked about for a long time because Israel's um, infrastructure has been out of reach for the most part, right? Like their defense ministry that's in downtown Tel Aviv surrounded by civilians is now a, a, a legitimate target for Hezbollah rockets that are not defensible by Israel. Um, and can knock out key infrastructure. Could hit Damona nuclear plant, which could create a chemical um, reaction from those attacks. Um, I mean, I don't know if the world would sit by and watch Israel use gas uh, of, of all, uh, you know, of all countries to use gas to kill their enemies. Well, I, I th- the, po-
2: the point is, they might not. Uh, I, I think the point, and again, just stressing this is speculation. That uh, people have been uh, making is that well these these Israeli claims that Hamas has or would or, or or wishes to have chemical weapons they would then say oh whatever happened in those tunnels was Hamas's own chemical weapons right. again that's in the realm of speculation but given how much Israel lies and lies constantly. Uh, I when I read that I thought well I just can't dismiss that out of hand
7: but it gives you a sense that they're not willing to go in foot by foot why don't they why isn't that article about their robotic dogs that they've created or their engineering units that have been training for a decade to go down in tunnels why are on a military level people discussing things um, that are not feasible like flooding or um, gassing... Um...
2: Oh, I, I didn't say that they're discussing it. I say it's... it's they're, they're claiming that Palestinians have chemical weapons, and I'm saying that other people have speculated that this is projection. It may be that Israel wishes to use chemical weapons and then blame Hamas. And by the way, we've seen those kinds of um, tricks and hoaxes in recent years in, in related in relation to other uh, conflicts in the region, uh, false flag attacks using chemical weapons. So that's why I raised that. But I suppose your bigger point uh, that I take away from this is that even if Israel wanted to try something like that, the technical difficulties and the scale of the uh, underground network that likely exists under Gaza would would probably render it ineffective on any large scale
7: or at least isolated yeah the the comprehensive nature of the tunnels is really its strategic impact it's that you can't just go down and get the, it's not like their one barrack is down underneath and you just need to get to the master barrack and then it, it all falls apart from there it's not like that they're all individual units that are defending each area of a tunnel um, they have the ability to close off tunnels um, for their strategic uh, areas for their um, resource areas under there for their weapons and food um, it 's not clear that you 're going to ever be able to to completely go through the tunnel network, even the absurdity of trying to win that war on the ground level would then precipitate a war underground that 's never happened in history before. Yeah. Um, you know people have used tunnels often in warfare to hide weaponry. Um, you know, to use it as essentially a bomb shelter, um, but we haven 't really seen this strategic use of tunnels where the uh, where the impetus will be on the um, uh, invading force to actually physically go down and fight in an armed area where people are uh, able to reload um, reload their weaponry, and in worst case scenarios they 're able to just detonate the entire tunnel area and collapse whatever Israeli Special Forces unit, should they ever get to that point, um, can just collapse it on top of the Israeli uh, unit. They can uh, use the tunnels to blow up Israeli units on top. And so the ambush that we saw yesterday, I think, is just the tip of the iceberg of what, of what they're going to face. And then to go down in the tunnels, presumes that you've won that war on the surface level, and then you're able to safely muster your troops over top of the tunnel entrance and then carry out a second operation that goes down into the tunnels to fight. So you'd have to uh, move your way foot by foot, inch by inch from the Gaza border to downtown Gaza City. Uh, I mean, that, that just that alone, even if you didn't have a fighting force that was as competent as the Palestinians or as prepared as the Palestinians, that task would take months. And any example in military history, uh, months is an optimistic version of that story. So Israel's preparedness has to include sa- their soldiers dying at rates that we haven't seen since the 1973 war. And if they're ready for that, they haven't shown any history of that. They're an army that trains all the time, but their actual face-to-face combat experience is thin, and the examples of them are examples that are sort of famous for being defeats, like the two thousand and six uh, war in Lebanon where they tried to I- invade binjubael and and Hezbollah uh, inflicted a, a defeat on them, a defeat that the Israelis called a defeat in their commission after the two thousand and six war. Israel called it a defeat um they'll call it a defeat after their uh their inquest into what happened uh on October 7th. They'll call that a military.
1: Welcome back. And uh that was uh an analysis of the humanitarian and uh, military situation in Gaza. And uh that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. You've been listening to uh the Pan African Journal special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Tuesday, uh, October the 24th, uh, 2023. Uh, we are broadcasting from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blog.radio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and big issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And, of course, We're going to close out our program uh, with the music of the legendary Max Romeo, uh, who has been in the news uh, recently, uh, requesting uh, just compensation uh, for the music uh, that he has put out uh, for many, many years. And uh, this is entitled uh, Open the Iron Gate. This is Abayomi Ezekiewe signing off and have a beautiful week.
6: Every man to know. Every man has to Every man has to know. Every
8: man has. of the bar
6: Together, the way you want us to be We can drink milk and honey No wine we need this time Then you can be my honey Your daddy won't mind If you wanna be a priest Down here in Babylon Who do have to keep us back Alright or, or try Why can't you daughter fall in love with me? Am I not? Break bread together, the way I want us to be. We can drink milk and honey, no wine we need the time. Then you can be my honey, your daddy. Thank you.